so um, we've come to a text in Exodus, specifically 34, that I think is, it's like the high point. The high point, not just in the book of Exodus. It's like, I think of it as the galactic center or the high point, probably in the entire Hebrew scriptures, that is your Old Testament. Because it's, it's that, that place, it's a text that talks about uh, God showing his glory to Moses and declaring his name along with his character. And it is a passage of scripture that is quoted more verbatim, verbatim um, alluded to, or reflected on, or expounded upon than probably any other Old Testament text with the possible exception of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation account. Um, but we're going to look at it a little bit differently this morning because um, it's set within a context of, of, of failure. Failure. And it gives it a, a, a different orientation, and so that's why I'm going to preach 34 from chapter 33. Now, if you've been or you have read or you're in the process of reading the history of Israel, one of the things I would encourage you to do is read it as your own personal biography because as I read the history of Israel, what I read is I, I read a biography of humanity. It's not just that the people of Israel were stupid or blind. It's that they represent all humanity as stiff-necked people. And I can even read my own biography like into their, their story. Like, I connect with it because I, like you, I'm a, a person challenged and um, facing my own struggles with, with sin and with following the Lord, as they did. I mean, who hasn't experienced as a Christian um, the initial stages of coming to Christ, you know? Like when the, the people of Israel were saved out of Egypt, how excited they were, and they were singing the songs of Moses, and they were excited, they were seeing God. I mean, everything's alive. I mean, that's my story. Some of you have heard some of it in the past. I, I remember it like it was yesterday, 1987. And I remember just having that, that, that change. And it wasn't a change that I willed for my life. It was a change that God brought upon my life where I just, I sensed him. My actions, my attitudes changed. My language changed. My approach to life changed. And it was, it was like God was alive in my life. I had an evangelistic zeal that, that was automatic. I didn't have to like work at it. And it wasn't a year after that where, like, I got sideswiped, and part of it by my own stupidity, lack of vigilance, and sinful desire, where it ended up in a relationship with a girl that took me south. And, um, and that lasted for about a year. And I was in a Christian school at the time. And I was just, during that year, I can tell you my, my passion diminished. I, I wore that deep down sense of guilt. I felt like the Lord was so far away from me. It was a horrible place to be. Not unlike the people of Israel who in chapter 32 blew it big time and worshiped the golden calf. They experienced the power of salvation and within who knows how much time, a short period of time, we find themselves blowing it big time. And I wonder how many of you can relate. You know, it seems to be a, um, a rather... Um, Typical pattern for someone to come to Christ, that is to experience the deliverance of God and then to face a test or a, or a challenge or blow it. That doesn't mean, of course, that I haven't made my mistakes or had my challenges since then. It's just, that's the story of my life and it's the story of people of Israel and my guess is it's the story of your life too. It's like we are rescued 
free, but at the same time, we, like them, face challenges of, of sinfulness. And the question is this for us. How do you, how are we restored? Right? What path do we take to go from abysmal failure when you feel trapped, stuck, guilty, to being restored back to that place where your joy is renewed in the Lord? where there's that fresh sense of passion in your life, where evangelism, that is telling people about Jesus, isn't something hard for you, but it becomes something that's spontaneously organic. How, how do we go from failure to flourishing again? And I think that's the, 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 the teaching or what this passage provides us, chapter 33 and 34, because it falls directly on the heels of a major failure, that is, they worship the golden calf, chapter 32. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 34, there is covenant renewal, that is, God and his people are back together again. So between the failure and the renewal, there is this, there's these two chapters. And my prayer is that, you know, these will provide a path, uh, um, uh, a way that we can see rest- restoration happen in our own lives as we, as we face our own challenges. So with that said, um, we're going to start in, in the kind of the valley of failure, um, but we're going to go up the mountain, and by the time we finish, we're going we're gonna to finish with the face of God, from failure to the face, face of God. So the path of restoration between the failure of 32 and the renewal of the end of chapter 34. The first thing I want you to notice in the text is how the sin of Israel created a, I'm going to call it a divine distancing. You know, distance, as in relational distance. Now, we know that from our own normal relationships with our children or our spouse or with our friends, that when we damage or we offend each other, either small ways or big ways, it creates like relational distancing. You know, if, if you're a husband and you sat on the couch and didn't help at all with the cleanup of Thanksgiving, you probably experienced just a little bit of relational distancing from your wife. It's like, what are you doing on the couch? I'm doing all the work, you know? Well, you might be surprised that happens on the divine human level as well. There is this divine distancing that happens, and it, it, the realization that this happens is part of the process of restoration. So here, first observation, first part of the path, is just the reality of divine distancing due to sin. Verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, said, said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will get it, I give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Now stop. Right now he's saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I made a covenant promise to give you land, and I'm going to send an angel with you to accomplish that purpose. He's not giving out on his promises, but the next part. But... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Be like, God is basically saying, listen, this journey you're on, I'm out. I'm not going to be with you. My visible, tangible presence of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, I'm staying back. Because it might, just might be that I incinerate you 
on the way because you're so rebellious. Have you ever been so angry at somebody because of something they did that you couldn't stand to be in the presence because you think you might do something damaging? It's like, I don't want to see you right now, and it's actually in your best interest if I don't, right? It's kind of the sense. The Lord saying, I'm, I'm not going with you. Could there be any more devastating words? I mean, to not have the Lord's presence with Israel, it's like, like Christmas without Jesus or Thanksgiving without Turkey, although that's a horrible understatement. It's like, he's the everything. I'm not going with you. This is, this is divine distancing. They have failed, and there's this, I'm going to fulfill my promises, but... I'm not going with you. But that distancing is also communicated in the next little section in terms of where his tent is. In verse 7, and I want you to see that the logic of what strings these different little vignettes together is the idea of distance. If you remember back to chapter 29, verse 45, and you won't remember, but I'll remind you. God said, when making the tabernacle, he says explicitly, I want to dwell among my people. I, I don't want to just be with, I want to be among them. I want to be in their midst. That was like such an awesome truth. Like that's the desire in the heart of God. But in this second little vignette, this little section, this paragraph, it says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. The tent was designed to be among the people. But here it's like, not only is it outside, but it's far off. There is this distancing that has happened as a result of the people's sin. And this is a distancing from what we might call the Old Testament church. These aren't pagans. These aren't people who were lost in their sin separated from God, these are people who have been brought into covenant, like us. Divine distancing. That, that's one of the things that sinfulness does in our lives is it creates a, a relational distance between God and us. Now, I can hear objections to this. You're like, wait a second, Dan. I know my Bible better than that. God promised never to leave us nor forsake us. So how could you talk about this thing called divine distancing? Well, let me just say explicitly and hopefully passionately that I fully and completely believe that God's promise is ultimately true that he will never, leak or, never leave nor forsake his people, ultimately. That's true of the people of God in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, true of the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. That promise has always been true. But on a relational level, on a relational level, I think it's different. We are in a dynamic relationship with the Lord in which when we choose to worship something other than him or we choose to walk in a way that's outside of his will, not trusting him, there will be this relational distancing and we will experience a dry up of the joy of the Lord. The joy of our salvation will be diminished. There will be a sense that we are left alone. Even though God will never ultimately leave or forsake his people. The promise is true, but that doesn't mean that God does not it, the spirit is not grieved in our lives, or the spirit is, is not quenched in our lives, which is going to feel like distancing. 
Or a second objection would be this. It's like, well, Dan, that's the old covenant or new covenant. God doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't distance himself from, from the church, from believers in the church. To which I would probably say, well, I would say, you know, I think you're wrong there. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, a church that he says was neither cold nor hot but lukewarm, and he felt like he wanted to vomit them out of his mouth because of their arrogance, their pride, and their self-sufficiency. And what does he say at the end? He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. The picture is of Christ on the outside of the church, disconnected and distanced where communion and fellowship is almost impossible. But if you have ears to listen and open the door, I'll come in. In other words, I will renew your, my fellowship with you, and you will experience my love again, and you will experience the joy of your salvation again. So it seems like it's in the New Testament too. I would just say, get rid of the seams. It is in the New Testament too. And what does this mean on a very practical level? It, it, it means that we can't expect, and I'll just be blunt, we can't expect to entertain or harbor a secret life addicted to pornography and at the same time think we're going to experience deep, rich fellowship with Jesus. It's not going to happen. Or if you're more concerned or more committed to your work than you are to the worship of God, either privately or publicly, well then, you can't expect to have the joy of your salvation explode in song. You see? There's distancing that takes place. Whatever word you want to use. And that by itself ought to be enough motive to say, you know what? I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to live in this languid place where I feel like God is far off. Now, let me just clarify one thing. If you're a person who says, man, I just don't feel like God is, loves me, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're in some deep, secret pattern of, of sin in your life. It seems like there are seasons in life, like in the Psalms, where you're like a deer out in the desert and you're panting for the streams of water. And it's a season of life. It's not because there's some deeply embedded sin. In addition to the fact that we tend to be over-reliant on our feelings anyway. But it begs the question, if your life is so dried out and you can sing songs about the resurrection with absolutely no response whatsoever, perhaps, just perhaps, you have settled into a lifestyle that is outside of the will of the Lord and you're experiencing this divine distancing. And it can be something as small as apathy. Apathy. A settled pattern of life of apathy. And you wonder, where did the joy go? Well, distancing. Something to think about. Well, where do you go from here? All right? There's this, God has distanced himself from his people. He hasn't abandoned them. He's just, he's going to fulfill his promises. Well, the people respond with, I think, what would be a necessary second, second step to, to, to restoration? And, and, and that is the need for a sustained, I picked that word on purpose, humble repentance. How do they respond to this word that, like, God's saying, I'm sending you up, I'm not going with you. 
I am outside the camp. I'm not inside the camp among you. This is their response. Verse 4, it says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may think that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards, which meant the rest of the journey, which was at least three decades, 40 years, they went without these ornaments, a visible demonstration of their mourning. It doesn't say they repented here, but that's the sense of it. And not only so, but and I didn't put this in the slides, but when Moses would go out to the tent of meeting that was far off and outside the camp, they would stand at the, their tent openings and they would worship from a distance as if they were longing for the day in which they could be restored. I think this is a picture of, of, of repentance, of humble repentance. And I called it a humble, sustained repentance because they continue to go without their ornaments as a outward sign of their inward mourning. There is no way back, either on a human level, human to human, or human to God, after there has been sin and offense, but any other place than repentance. That is, if it's to be healthy. I suppose people can gloss it over and learn to live with each other without truly dealing with the damage that was done. But the only healthy way is through this word we call repentance, which is an old word, but a precious word, because it means fully embracing and owning your sin, fully embracing and owning the level of offense that you have caused God or another person, and then endeavoring in your life, no matter how long it takes to change direction. And that, that repentance is not simply a one-time event. It may start as a one-time event, but most of the time, repentance is a process and a path you take that may begin with an initial, I, this needs to change in my life. But then, a change doesn't always come quickly or on a dime. A whole series of, I'm going to sustain this humble attitude of repentance before the Lord as I seek a new direction. That, by the way, is not wallowing in self-pity, and that's not beating yourself up. Both of those come from a position of pride. That's a, way of, a, a wrong way of dealing with one's own inner ick. But to sustain a humble attitude of knowing, Lord, I am poor in spirit. Um, apart from your grace, I am, I am I'm a sinful person who needs you to help me straighten this out. That is a sustained repentance. I like the way um, theologian and scholar Stephen Larson writes it. He says, throughout one's Christian life, every believer must be brought back again and again to the place of repentance, brokenness over sin and turning away from sin or to be an ongoing lifestyle, not an occasional event. It's good. So we think of repentance, we think instant, right? It's like, hey, man, I'm really sorry I screwed you over. Uh, sorry, will you forgive me? Great. Now can we move on? How often does restoration happen, like, on a dime? It doesn't. Either on the part of the one offending or the one offended. It's a process. Repentance. They sustained a humble attitude. And that, is, that is, there's no way back other than that. To come to that point where you realize, I'm, man, Lord, that what I once, I was once 
swimming in the river, as Jeannie said, and now I'm like swimming in the dust. What happened? Well, I've settled into a pattern that I know is outside what the Lord would have for me. And so what do I do? Well, he wants you to acknowledge the fact that you made the stupid decision of wallowing in the dust. But then that's, that's not it. Just those are two things that I think are very important. The recognition that a sinful lifestyle, indulging in a sinful lifestyle, will put you at a distance. It will create a, um, a desert-like experience for joy and salvation that needs to be followed up by repentance. But those two things in and of themselves are not enough, which brings us to the third and final point. Something I touched on last week, which most of you were here, so you actually got this part. Second service didn't. <laughs> and that has to do with our absolute and utter need for a mediator. A mediator. You know, something that just, in terms of the Bible, it's someone who goes to bat for the people upward, and someone who comes down to the people and represents God to us, like the go-between. Like, Moses fits that place. He stands really in the Old Testament unparalleled in his, in his role. I mean, you think about all that we've been given because of Moses right? We wouldn't know about creation. We wouldn't know about Adam and Eve. We wouldn't know about the Garden of Eden. We wouldn't know about the flood. Well, take that back. There are outside biblical sources that talk about the flood. Um, we wouldn't know about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or the promises. We wouldn't know about Exodus. We wouldn't know about Pharaoh. We wouldn't know about anything except God communicated through Moses the truth. That is, he mediated God's revelation, his truth. In the same way, Moses then goes to bat for the people as the go-between a very crucial, crucial role. So, one of the unique things about Moses is it says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Now, we know from what's later, said later in the chapter, this doesn't mean like a direct access. It means that he had an intimate communication with God as a man speaks to his friend. That's the level of relationship he had with God. Like, they talk to each other like a man talks to his friend. And one of the things Moses does as someone who talks to God as his friend is he goes to bat for the people. When he realizes and hears the word from the Lord, listen, you're going up, but I'm not going with you. Moses like pleads the case. He pleads for God to reconsider, to in effect change his mind. He says, this is just a piece of the argument where Moses is discussing this with the Lord. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I don't want to go without you. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of earth? It's like, you're what make us us. Your presence is proof that your grace is upon us. Your favor is upon us. You're, we lose all of our identity and distinctiveness if you don't go. So he's, he's pleading. God, it's like a lawyer in a courtroom pleading with the Lord. Come on, you've got to reconsider this. And the amazing thing is that Yahweh reconsiders. Do you hear that? I'm trying to 
deal with the nuances of what they call anthropomorphism, which is talking about God in human categories. But it's still astounding that Moses has enough influence on Almighty Yahweh that now he's like, okay. And as a result of Moses going to bat for the people, the Lord does go with them. You see, you see the role? He not only turns God's anger away, but he convinces God to, to persevere in accompanying his people. He plays a vital role in the, in the preservation of God's people and the securing of their salvation. That's, that's how he represents the people upward. You, you follow? You got that part? Okay. So, can I get a visible nod? Yeah, you got that part. Upward? I'm going to make my point in a second. But he also is someone who mediates God's truth downward. And shows us who God is. And that, I think, is the place of that amazing, what I will call the galactic center of the Old Testament, where Moses gets to see and hear the glory of God. He asks the question, Lord, can I see your glory? Can I see your face? And the Lord answers neither yes nor no, but more of a kind of. And you know the story. It says, I will put you in a cleft of a rock. I will cover you and protect you with my hand. I will pass by you, my, my presence, and I will allow you to see the backside as I declare my name. Moses is the closest that any sinful man has ever gotten to seeing even a glimpse of the greatness of God. The only one, as close as you can get. Of course, God answers and says, kind of, that's what I'm going to do. And here's the event itself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I want you to notice something. This is God showing his glory, and he's connecting his glory with his word, his proclamation. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In answer to Moses' prayer, show me your face, he shows him and declares him his glory, and he says his name twice, my name, my name, and then he fills out what that means, like this is who I am, and he talks about his graciousness in so many different words. I don't just love, I abound in love, which means I overflow in love and grace and compassion and faithfulness, um, keeping love for thousands and forgiving, that's who I am. At the same time, and you can cut the tension with a knife between verse 6 and 7, yet not clearing the guilty. I love and forgive in a way that doesn't minimize or diminish justice. A conflict or a problem that will never be fully resolved until the cross of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to notice is this. This beautiful, glorious text where God, excuse me, Moses hears who God is. That is quoted in the Bible throughout. It's not just a private experience for him. It's like, oh, lucky Moses, he got to see the glory of the Lord. 
This is part of his mediatorial role. Having seen and experienced at the greatest extent possible from sinful man's eyes who God is, he now goes back down to the people who are still muddied in their failure, and he says, guess what I saw? Guess what I heard? I have seen with my own eyes and heard with my own ears that God is abounding in love. And he's forgiving and his grace knows no bounds. That's what I experienced and that's exactly what they need to hear without God diminishing his justice one minute. This is exactly the message that the people needed to hear from their mediator. You can understand why the Apostle John in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 saw in this experience, in this event, on the heels of a massive moral failure, he saw the shadow of Jesus and would say, the word, the proclamation, didn't become a cloud, it became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory full of grace or steadfast love and truth in the person of Christ. The perfect and fullest mediator who went to bat for us, right? Who went to bat for us and said, me, not them, and satisfied the just demands of the law and then spilled over God's steadfast love and mercy to us as one who went to bat for us. The go-between who did what Moses could not do, and that is separate our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's the role he played. Listen, the only reason you and I can sit here and sing at all, the only reason we have any hope at all is because we rely on someone else is because we rely on the fact that we are righteous because Christ earned righteousness in his life, and we stand forgiven because God earned our forgiveness in his death. We rely on him, his mediation for us alone. Forgiveness comes through Christ alone, but at the same time, he also is the full disclosure of God, right? It goes both ways. He represents us to the Lord and goes to bat for us, but he also shows us the wonder of who God is. And that's where Jesus is so much better than Moses ever was. Moses never got to see the face of God, did he? But, the Gospel of John says, and you saw it, that no one has seen God at any time except God, the one and only who stands at his side. You ever think about what a face represents, how important it is? It's intimate. It is like the, the fullest expression of a person, right? If, when you see a face of a loved one, a husband or a mom or a dad or a child, you instantly recognize and go, oh, that's Jim, or that's my wife, Deanna, or that's my child, Allie, right? You don't get that from looking at their elbow or their ankle or their hand or their foot. The fullest expression of a person's personhood is in the face when you know who they are. And the only one who has seen the full disclosure of God's face, face to face, 
is Jesus, which means he is himself the fullest disclosure of, discloser of this is who God really is. Beyond what Moses ever grasped, this is who God is. The word made flesh. Our ultimate and perfect mediator both ways, making God known to us and going to bad and securing our salvation to God. And the path of restoration has to come here. Yeah, okay, God, you've distanced yourself from me because I am, I'm living a, a out, outside. And I... I know it's wrong. I'm, I'm going to pursue this path of repentance in my life. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't come to Christ, if it doesn't come to our mediator, if it doesn't come to the cross, if it doesn't come to what he has done for us, then it short circuits. And there's no true restoration. It has to come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Because then and there only do we realize that, you know what? It has been paid for. I don't have to work myself back into the good graces of God. He already did that for me. He calls me to repent, but he calls me to repent in faith in my mediator. And here's the kicker, and I end with this. Somehow, and I don't know how this is possible, somehow, like I told you we've gone from the floor of failure, somehow, what Jesus did on the cross, and he still intercedes on our behalf. He's still going to bat for us. Somehow, Jesus equips us or qualifies us so that at some future point, the resurrection, we are going to see the face of God. What Moses never got to see Revelation 22, verse 3 says, And they shall see like the full expression of God's personhood. Some theologians would say we'll never have direct access to God's essence unmediated. Others would say, yes, we do. We just don't understand what it's like. And I'm not sure what I believe. I just know that the singular greatest promise in all of the Scripture and the greatest, the greatest experience that mankind can even begin to dream of is to behold the face of Almighty God. And Jesus alone takes us there. And that, my friends, that's a hope worth living for, and that's a hope worth repenting for, and a hope worth taking the path of restoration for, because that's the end of where we're headed. That just kind of blows me away. The goodness of God takes failures and gives them access to his face. What an amazing God we have. And I pray that this morning as you come to the table, you just contemplate that. And, and maybe there's business you need to do with the Lord. You know, if you're stuck in a rut and you know things need to change. Um, now is the time to begin that. But then remember, it's a process. It's not always in just a one-time event. It's a process. So listen, you know, most of you know how this is. I'm going to pray. And if, as I pray, I could have the communion servers come up. Um, there's gluten-free bread regular bread, just have to ask for it. And uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, once the I'm finished, just get up from your seats and come and you can take it with your family, you can pray with your spouse, do it alone. Some people like to kneel at the stairs and just do business there. Um, it's up to you. Father, we thank you for this visible symbol of, of what our mediator did for us. Um, 
that we didn't deserve for ourselves. I just ask, God, that you would use this time where we're actually taking in what represents the body and the blood of Jesus, his great sacrifice. Um, I pray that you just do your business in our hearts this morning. Um, Remind us of good things and convict us of wrong things as we come to the table in Christ's name. Amen.